There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, March 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, civil rights advocates say a bill in the state legislature could restrict materials in public libraries. Then, a new program in Mississippi trains paramedics and emergency health care workers to deliver babies and deal with neonatal emergencies. Plus, three years after the first reported case of COVID-19, we reflect on lessons learned from the coronavirus pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lawmakers have advanced legislation to protect children from obscene content online, but recent changes to the bill could result in the censoring of vast amounts of digital content available in libraries. McKenna Rainey Gray is with the ACLU of Mississippi. She tells our Kobe Vance vague language in the amended legislation may present challenges for public libraries in Mississippi's communities and universities. So once it was amended, it has some regulations about databases and vendors for public libraries and school libraries so that they are limiting access to things that uh, minors or adults are ordinarily able to access through online portals through libraries. So there are Internet providers that and database providers that have um, online access to books through school libraries, public libraries, and this is limiting the kinds of things that they are allowed to have available on their catalogs. Um, That has some implications for funding for librarians, libraries themselves from Mississippi itself, federal funding. Uh, It is asking databases to do things that they don't ordinarily do. As far as I understand, there's not a way that you can age restrict access to the, the books themselves as they currently are. So it's really just saying that libraries are not able to use databases in their current forms uh, because of a fear that a child or a minor, or in some cases an adult, as the bill is actually written, might access something that is obscene. And it's, it's vague. It's not obvious what it is that the bill is intended to do. And it's generally going to be really problematic for libraries across the state. Is this going to affect just children, or do you think this could bleed over into the materials adults need to access? The way that it's written, it would definitely affect access for, like, it would specifically ban access for adults to some some books. 
uh, they have indicated, lawmakers have indicated that that's the kind of thing that they would like to fix. The second, uh, or I guess when they next review the, the bill and decide how it is that they're going to change it. But even if it does not specifically target books that adults have access to, if you're saying that the restrictions on databases for libraries are so severe and so out of line with what they currently do that libraries cannot use them, then you are inhibiting access from all Mississippians to those kinds of online databases that libraries across the state use. Do you think this would require libraries to discontinue those um, online databases or discontinue use of those online databases entirely? Or do you think there will be a way forward uh, where libraries could work with those online databases to make sure those materials are uh, off limits? From what I have heard from librarians, this would uh, severely impact the way that they are distributing materials online. I don't know what kind of conversations they would have to have with their vendors for databases. Um, that would be something that lawmakers should be asking librarians before they decide this is the kind of bill that they want to pass. What do you think this could mean for Mississippians losing access to this content? It's the kind of thing that you wonder about all the time whenever you have challenges to books and things like that. It's access to material, access to new ideas, access to literature, fantasy, um, nonfiction resources. Those are the kinds of things that, particularly as a really literary state like Mississippi, we ordinarily are encouraging um, young people, older people, everybody with an interest in expanding their mind or, or even just reading something for fun. That's the kind of thing that we want people to be able to access like categorically. We want people to be able to access things that they want to be able to read through libraries, through public libraries. It's why we have public libraries in the first place. I have not seen a uh, basically library censorship bill of this kind. Uh, it's not one that I have looked at as, as they have been enacted in other states, but there's a lot of issues that I can see that would come about from passing a bill like this constitutionally. There is language in this amendment that considers materials for uh, different sexualities, uh, different gender uh, identities would be considered would be included in what is considered obscene material. Do you think that could have an effect on the LGBT community, uh, or going beyond that, people that are just trying to do research on those communities? Yes, anytime that you limit access to a group of people or an idea, you're going to inhibit the people who inhabit that identity and the people who are trying to research that identity. So saying that there's a subset of ideas that are considered obscene based on there's no like regulatory body who would be deciding these things in advance, um, that, that would be really pr problematic to have librarians trying to figure out. But if you are saying these kinds of identities um, and groups of people or ideas are obscene, that's definitely going to have repercussions for, like I said, people who are LGBTQ or people who are interested in learning more about those ideas. Do you think this would ban the Bible in these online databases? That's a really interesting example because that is a, in a bill that uh, Nick Bain said they were affectionately re referring to as the porn bill, you'd think that online access to pornography is a like fairly discreet idea. It was six pages in its initial form. And the way that this has been rewritten and amended, um, I, I don't know that anybody knows whether or not the Bible would be prohibited under the way that the bill is currently 
currently written, again, because it's so vague that nobody really knows uh, what is prohibited based on the, the defining factors of the bill. But it would be a really interesting um, predicament for them to be in if online access to the Bible is restricted through a Mississippi bill. McKenna Rainey Gray is a Justice Project staff attorney with the ACLU of Mississippi. Coming up, a new program in Mississippi trains paramedics and emergency health care workers to deliver babies and deal with neonatal emergencies. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Connect with the people looking to connect with you. Become an underwriter with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. For more information, go to mpbonline.org slash more slash underwriting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. As hospitals in rural America close their doors, residents are strapped to find options in an emergency, like going into labor. A program in Mississippi provides paramedics and healthcare workers with training for neonatal emergencies. Think of it as a boot camp for delivering babies. The Gulf States newsroom's Maya Miller heads into a classroom with an unconventional teacher. Meet Victoria Tubby. She's a high-tech mannequin simulating a woman in labor. She bleeds and screams and has a removable belly and placenta. She can simulate things like seizures, postpartum hemorrhage, preeclampsia, abnormal presentation of the babies. Dr. Tara Lewis is an emergency medicine doctor leading a training at the Mississippi Center for Emergency Services. They're paramedics, flight medics, and a few nurses. They've got their sleeves rolled up, hands in blue gloves. So you're at your local small town ED. Ms. Tubby is brought into the ED by a private vehicle after delivering about a 26-week infant in the car. They listen carefully as Lewis lays out the scenario, making notes of the patient's age, symptoms, and what's missing from her chart. And then... Oh, we have a head out. We almost have a baby. They deliver a baby. This is stork training. Good job. With hospital closures throughout the Gulf South, there are growing gaps in obstetric and neonatal care. Emergency health care providers face all sorts of unexpected situations, and stork training gets them prepared. And so you can like actually get your hands on it and, and catch a baby and, and do it multiple times. Because you know that repetition kind of helps educate people, helps you get that just muscle memory of what to do. Knowing what to do includes stabilizing a mother who's having a seizure or intubating an infant. Emergency procedures that could mean life or death when the nearest hospital is hours away. Lewis says the response to stork training has been overwhelmingly positive. The program started in May of 2022. And initially, the plan was to teach 10 classes in a year. And that's turned into at least two per month. 
which means more than 400 people have attended a stork session, and the training had real-world effects almost immediately. We've had people reach out to us that we have trained that have delivered babies the next day. Across the Gulf states, hospitals have downsized, many closing their labor and delivery units. This leaves pregnant people to rely heavily on emergency services. Most of the Mississippi Delta qualifies as a maternity care desert. We see people having to drive two to three hours to get obstetric health care in the Delta specifically. The poor health care system also affects their babies. There is only one children's hospital in the entire state. Adam Bandy says that long ambulance trips are common for anyone who needs specialized care for children. He's a part of the pediatric transport team at the Mississippi Center for Emergency Services. Make sure you pack your lunch because we're probably going to be gone for five to six hours on this trip. And that's a routine trip. That's not if there's any kind of complications or if we have to provide any kind of X-level care. I feel like I'm going to faint. This isn't his first time completing the stork course. He says it's vital to keep those skills sharp because pediatric transport can take him into some deeply rural areas. We'll go um, to Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee on occasion, and we will transfer either them from here to there or we will bring them from there for resources. Stork provides each student with a duffel bag packed with supplies to deliver a baby and stabilize a laboring mom. Of course, bedside manner makes a difference, and they can also practice that with Victoria Tubby. So, Victoria, are you okay? You want to see your baby? Yes. 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 Congratulations, honey. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Coming up, three years after the first reported case of COVID-19, we reflect on lessons learned from the coronavirus pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. On March 11, 2020, health officials announced the first case of the novel coronavirus in Mississippi. It's also the day the World Health Organization classified the virus as a pandemic. In the three years since, over 13,000 Mississippians have died as a result of COVID-19. Nearly one million cases have been identified in the state. But with better prevention and treatment methods, the disease has become less lethal for most residents. Our Michael Guidry talked to Dr. John Cross, president of the Mississippi Medical Association, about the last three years living with the coronavirus. 
we leaned on each other, uh, I guess, in the whole medical profession. Uh, we asked uh, the entire allied health professionals, whether that's nurses, doctors, uh, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, hospital employees, uh, all to kind of get ready uh, and prepare. Uh, and then we leaned on our state health department at that time. You know, Dr. Thomas Dobbs was our state health officer uh, to get us the most updated information from places like the CDC uh, and also from the federal government. Uh, so suddenly we had a, uh, a large influx of patients, and those were coming to clinics, and they were coming to emergency rooms, they were coming to hospitals. Uh, and quickly we learned they needed uh, respiratory support, whether it was nasal oxygen or, you know, ventilators. Uh, we weren't real sure at the beginning of who was going to progress to these uh, respiratory failures, uh, and we started seeing ICUs, um, and we we started asking health professionals um, to work, you know, at longer hours than ever before with limited resources. Uh, I remember supply chain issues uh, like respirators, uh, stuff like rubber gloves, like hand sanitizers, um, and so uh, you know, looking back in three years. Uh, we went, at the time, it went off the information that we knew. We didn't know everything initially. Uh, but as days came out, we got more and more guidance. Uh, and really began to, to lean on our state health officer, Dr. Dobbs, for updated data. I remember press conferences with the governor and Dr. Dobbs. We kind of fell back onto the principles from the Spanish flu of 1918. You know, that's stuff like wash your hands. Hmm. Um, you know, we talked about the six feet of spacing. We talked about... You know, stay home if you're having symptoms. We talked about masking, talked about all those things uh, until we finally figured out what was going on. And as time went on, we learned more and more about it. Um, and then, you know, here we are three years later, and we moved kind of into an endemic phase. It's still here, um, but we've got much more, much better treatments, and we're able to keep uh, those death curves down. Uh, but we also want to talk about the um, the perseverance and the and the difficult times and the, and the bravery of the healthcare workers um, over the last three years. And so we're appreciative for all the healthcare workers who stepped up to take care of their patients and take care of their communities uh, during that time. Um, when we look back, you know, what can we learn about the response, that initial response to you know this this pandemic, both the good and the bad uh, about how equipped both we were as a state and a nation uh, and, and still what lessons might have been learned uh, that could hopefully inform any future response? Well, one main point I guess I would make is that, you know, public health um, is a health care issue, but it's also an economic issue. It's all interconnected. Uh, so when you make the, make the choice to uh, close down outpatient, non-essential health care services, you know, that has economic consequences. You know, when you make the make the choice to, you know, have a lockdown type situation where people leave the house, that becomes, a, you know, an economic uh, impact as well as a, you know, medical impact. And so, you know, lawmakers and government leaders have to have to work with healthcare workers and healthcare workers have to work with business and industry leaders. Uh, and communities have to help get out and communicate, um, you know, what's going on. So I think it's a... It's not just simply a healthcare issue. It's a it's a complete cultural uh, and community uh, community issue when something like that happens. 
this virus, I mean, it was a novel virus in that you know, it was it was something new that the medical community had to respond to. Uh, it's also very novel in the fact that it was this first time we've had this intersection between uh, a, a virus like this that was had still lots to learn about and how people uh, this new way that people both consume and share information uh, on the from, from the medical perspective. What challenges did that present present uh, the fact that we had something very unknown, but also a, a, a an environment where information and disinformation were very easily and commonly, I guess, mixed. What challenges did something like that present? Well, in medicine, we like standard of care, and we like, you know, um, evidence-based medicine, and we like, you know, long-term studies. Um, and so that makes it a little bit more difficult. And so that's why it's important uh, to do the best you can with the, with the resources and the knowledge you have at the time. Uh, and, you know, we saw many hospitals with limitations on uh, protective equipment for nurses and other healthcare workers. Uh, we saw limited resources on access to ventilators, uh, limited resources on um, supportive, uh, supportive things like oxygen and those sorts of things. So uh, as a physician, you know, you want to help out your patients and do the best you can with what you've got. Uh, and I would say one of the most difficult things was the fact that we didn't have years of evidence-based research or standards of care to make our medical decisions on. What have we learned about this virus and respiratory viruses like it that can inform, you know, continued, you know, medical interventions and and how we think about these things? Well, as you remember, the uh, Operation Warp Speed, we were able to get a vaccine out within about a year uh, based on mRNA technology, uh, and that was something new that we never had, had before, that we were able to, to change uh, proteins in the vaccine very quickly and then mass produce a vaccine. Uh, so I think going forward, some of that mRNA technology can help with other treatments, and it also helps with making vaccines more quickly adaptable to different strains of the virus. So uh, I think it accelerated the vaccine process. It also accelerated you know, telehealth and things that you can do, um, more ways to interact with patients uh, than you had before. Uh, and then we also learned, uh, you know, the importance uh, of getting communication out, you know, to other physicians about what they're seeing and how quickly they're seeing it. So, um, you know, there were a lot of things to learn. I think it accelerated a lot of the telehealth and a lot of the um, – research guidelines and the technologies uh, of how fast we can get medications out uh, and vaccinations out. And lastly, you mentioned earlier that we are now in more of an endemic phase. Um, what will life with SARS-CoV-2, this novel coronavirus, uh, and COVID-19 be uh, for the foreseeable future? Well, I think now we've learned uh, – you know, that it's okay if you're having symptoms, you know, whether that's whether that's a viral infection caused by the flu or whether that's a strep throat or whatever's going on. If you're having fever, it's okay to stay home, you know, and it's it's not uncommon to see somebody still, you know, wearing a mask to protect others. Um, and so I think we've got better treatments. You know, we've got oral medications. Uh, we've got better protocols uh, to help people from getting uh, in a severe respiratory status as we had before. Um, and so... You know, we're in a much better place as far as treating the virus. Now, you know, it, it's going to 
you know, it's going to be in the community. There's more natural immunity. There's more vaccinated immunity. Um, more people are aware of it, know to look for it. Um, but it, you know, it could it could mutate um, to different strains. But I don't think we're going to have the the same uh, initial shock that we had, you know, say three years ago. Um, and so I, we're in a better place just to to learn to live with it more than uh, worrying about you know the transmission of it. Dr. John Cross, president of the Mississippi Medical Association. Thank you so much for kind of reflecting on the last three years and and where we've been and where we sort of get to go with COVID-19. All right. Thank you very much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.